This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And in this week's show, we look at the swine flu, pigs in China, what it may mean for the global food supply chain. And everything you wanted to know about the world's largest pasta maker. We're talking about Barilla. They're based over in Italy. Fascinating look at the culture and how they had to change it to really hold on to maybe customers going forward. It's a fascinating read. First up, Boeing. Certainly the story of the year in many ways for investors, for regulators, and even for passengers. This story asks a question that many observers and investors have been asking as well. How did Boeing, renowned for its engineering culture, end up in such a tailspin with the 737 MAX? In the feature section this week, we dig into this. Peter Robeson, one of our star reporters on the West Coast and the whole Bloomberg empire, dug into this. It's a fascinating tale, a cautionary tale in a lot of ways in this modern era of business. Peter joins us from Seattle. So, Peter, how do you get into a story like this? Because I've Obviously, much ink has been spilled, but as Carol said, many of the big questions have not been asked and answered. It's a story that um, has, you know, caught a lot of attention, and, and rightly so, because it's it's a, a really stunning example of a company that, uh, you know, has been known for its meticulous engineering and its commitment to safety that uh, is is really being questioned about that right now. And so we tried to talk to employees who'd been at the company a long time. And what we kept hearing again and again was that uh, the the problem was that the company had shifted to a focus toward shareholder value rather than its traditional uh, engineering culture. And this was showing up in multiple ways, but um, it was showing up, uh, importantly, recently in performance reviews that you had engineers who were being asked um, in in more specific and, and as one said, more, more directly and threatening ways uh, for, for specific time and cost reductions. And so you had an engineering workforce that was responding to that. And, and you also had uh, layoffs, which were happening. And I think that's not been fully right. appreciated, that as, as Boeing's stock price was increasing, uh, it, was, it was laying off you know, many of its experienced uh, engineers. And, and these people were, were telling us that as, as that shuffle was happening, uh, they fear that things were being missed. And, and that's potentially how... Uh, this uh, mistake and some of the oversights that Boeing has acknowledged happened with the software. One thing I want to ask from a reporting perspective, how do you suss out those individuals, former employees that don't necessarily just have an ax to grind, but really can provide some insight into a corporate culture? That's a really good question. I think think part of it is just, you know, judgment from having been on the beat. I, I first started covering Boeing 20 years ago, and it was unusual to me in this story that you have engineers who normally wouldn't speak to the press who were speaking to me and they were speaking to me because they were concerned by what was happening. We, we talked uh, at length to an engineer named Rick Ludke who worked in the, the flight crew operations group that worked on the MAX and uh, this is someone who has two U.S. patents in flight crew alerting systems and, and has no real incentive or uh, he says to talk to us other than mm-hmm. you know his concern about the layoffs that were happening. And so, Peter, tell us about the key moments along this narrative over the over the past few years. You know, as you reported out, you talked to people, as you say, who don't normally uh, talk to the press, don't talk publicly about what was going on. What do they point to? You know, one of the key things, and, and you were all over this at the, at the time, was, you know, even the move from Seattle mm-hmm. and sort of outward into the rest of the country, some changes in manufacturing sites that seems to have contributed to this at least somewhat. Yes, I mean one one key thing is that um, to remember is that Boeing's uh, engineers are unionized. It's it's unusual for a white collar workforce, and that union uh, had a long strike uh, back in the year 2000, and uh, that happened to coincide uh, with the purchase that Boeing had made of McDonnell Douglas a couple of years before. And at, at that point, McDonnell Douglas managers came in, who many of the longtime engineers felt were more focused on shareholder value than, than making aircraft. And 
Uh, so relations became more tense at that point, and, and uh, it was after that point when Boeing moved its headquarters to Chicago that uh, it began shifting more work to non-union places, mm-hmm. places like South Carolina and Missouri. So I guess, you know, I think this is what we're all wondering. We talked about that there's still lots of questions about um, the 737 MAX. So, you know, Peter, what is it? What What went wrong? Was it shoddy manufacturing, shoddy oversight by Boeing? Was it regulators too in bed with Boeing? Was it a case of that the pilots didn't get enough simulator training and advice from Boeing about that they needed this training? Like, what happened? Training is is, is becoming a big focus. Uh, we're, we're, we're learning. Uh, Rick Ludke, uh, the engineer I spoke with, uh, was really thinking back to uh, a moment where managers asked the engineers in his group to not uh, do any designs that would trigger level D training. That, that's simulator training for airlines. And simulator training is something that airlines might want to avoid if they're transitioning their pilots from a uh, model they're currently flying to a new one because it's it's disruptive. An airline like Southwest has you know, 8,000 pilots and four simulators, and to cycle them all through simulators would take two years. So um, this was a selling point for Boeing, that uh, the new plane, when it was introduced, uh, that pilots could transition to it in an hour or two of instruction on an iPad. And it was crucial that, uh, so, so in order to do that, it's crucial that the training level be less than level D. So uh, according to Rick Ludke, he felt that compromised the design from the start. That's Peter Robeson. And Carol, both you and I, I think, walked into this story very hopeful, and it delivered in terms of really telling us what happened and what may happen next for Boeing. And Peter Robeson has been following Boeing for decades, so he really got the inside perspective on what's going on at the company, got former employees to talk to him uh, and trust him with their stories. So everyone probably knows about Gore-Tex. That's the breathable and waterproof material. Their parent company, though, does an awful lot more than that, Jason. I really love this story because I didn't know much about this company. Mm -hmm. It's got a fascinating corporate history, a fascinating corporate culture. Drake Bennett discovered it all. He's here with us in New York. So... Tell us the history first of Gore. I want to know, wait, were you wearing a jacket? And you're like, where the heck does this stuff come from? <laughs> no, okay. Well, the history of it is uh, goes back to uh, about 50 years ago, uh, a DuPont chemist named Wilbert Lee Gore, um, who uh, he's a chemical engineer, and he got obsessed with this one material. Um, and basically what the material was, was Teflon. Um, the, 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 the chemical name is PTFE. Um, it's a bit of a wonder material. You, everyone knows it's very slippery. It's also very uh, flexible. Uh, It's resistant to like high temperature and UV radiation and all sorts of things. So he really decided, you know, I want to like make all kinds of stuff with this. But DuPont at the time was basically just interested in making the stuff and selling it to other people to to make it into things. So he decided to go out, start his own company and do that. Um, So he got started by selling these coated cables. Uh, They're very high performing. They ended up going to the moon, among other places. Um, And then one day... Just going to the moon. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. It's, a cool product. it's fun. It's right. cool. Um, <laughs> then one day, his son, who also, uh, like his dad, was a chemical engineer, was playing around with the material, trying to figure out if you could stretch it because it's really expensive stuff. You want to try to, you know, use as little of it as possible. And he ended up creating this wholly new form of it um, called extended EPTFE. Um, by accident. By accident, yeah. right. So he wanted he to just do? make it. Like he he, he get- had like a, he had this basically like this length of it and he was trying to like very carefully pull it. Right. And then he got really frustrated and he just like yanked it. And it turned out that he, by doing that, could extended it like tenfold. Um, and, and it stayed strong, right? Or it stayed in it one piece. It got stronger, weirdly. Yeah. So what he did is he basically, the analogy I use in the story is that he, he it's like he took a length of string cheese and turned it into Swiss cheese. Um, so he opened up all these tiny little pores inside of it. And it turns out that those tiny little pores make it extraordinarily useful for a million different things. Um, Including this breathable material, yeah. right. which is how, as Carol said at the top, how most of us know this through right. North Face, Patagonia, right. and others, yeah. right? Gore-Tex is... Yeah. is uh, 
Um, I'm laughing because of that uh, Seinfeld reference um, <laughs> with George's puffy jacket. But um, <laughs> so basically, right. So it's again, it's these pores, and uh, they happen to be just the right size that uh, you know water vapor can ex- can escape through it, but so water it droplets, right? It right, breathes. you don't sweat crazy. Yeah. So lots of things are waterproof. The problem is that if it's waterproof, it's often waterproof in both directions. You're wearing it, you're skiing, you're hiking, and you just get wet from your sweat. So um, they basically revolutionize the outdoor wear industry by creating this these garments that you know you could wear in the outdoors in bad weather while you were running around and that basically created this whole market um huge market yeah and meanwhile they're creating a corporate culture i want to get to where they ultimately end up from a product perspective but in the meantime this company they create is a very different kind of company yeah yeah it's really interesting i mean bill gore the, the founder i think Part of the reason he left DuPont was because he wanted to start a a very different kind of company than this sort of traditional mid-century giant behemoth. And so he, you know, he read, you know, uh, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. He read all this kind of um, uh, anthropology, and he decided he was going to create this company that was kind of like a big tribe of engineers. So there's very little hierarchy. Our association. Right. It's, I mean, you read this famous memo he wrote, and it's it's a tiny bit culty, I think. I mean, there, there really is this sense that, um, you know, we, we're not like other companies. We don't need the kind of hierarchy that other companies have. But they've been able to make it work extraordinarily well. And people there are very happy. And they've been able to basically take this material and figure out all these different things to do with it um, and grow it into a, a big company. Well, and like we said, we all know the jackets and so on and so forth. But they have done a lot of other things. And mm-hmm. now they're really like pushing into new frontiers, so right. including the medical world. Right. So the medical world is something they've been in for a little while. They've, they've made stents and patches and all these like very high-performing surgical you know, the, the human body is a very, very difficult environment, and yeah. they've been able to create things that, that do well there. Um, but in the last few years, I think they would admit that they've they've had a bit of a hard time finding the next big thing. And right. so, and there's competition now right. to Gore-Tex, right? right? So they've got to look at other worlds. Right. There's competition to Gore-Tex. There's competition to, uh, to a lot of the products that they've been able to, to make very profitable. And they've also grown to the size where it's becoming a little harder to remain that kind of nimble tribe of engineers. And so part of what I was writing about is just how they're trying to kind of recapture that. Um, So tell us about the product, because now we're talking about creating, what, a cornea? Yeah, yeah, an artificial cornea. So corneal blindness is a big uh, problem in lots of parts of the world. Uh, and, And what happened is a couple engineers at Gore, who are from India, where this is a big problem, decided oh, we've got these materials that might actually work much, much better than the existing corneal implants. You know, the best thing to have is a a donor cornea, but in a lot of parts of the world, that's just not available. And there are these pretty bad implants that are hard to put in there that don't last very long. Um, And because Gore is full of these, like, materials wizards and this amazing library of wonder materials, they were able to kind of put this thing together and they've begun to test it, and it's it's looking really good. And part of the reason they were able to do this goes back to this culture mm-hmm. of spurring innovation, spurring creativity, right. but in a rather unstructured way that right. people sort of come together and fall away yeah. depending on what they're working on or they yeah. want to work on, right? Yeah, these guys met in the lunch line at this Gore event, and they kind of began to sort of spitball this idea, and they realized they needed like an optics expert, and there happened to be this physicist who was an optics expert, and they could sort of draw him into their group, and this all kind of happened in, 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 a, in this pretty um, loosey-goosey way, but Gore's figured out a way to kind of like, you know, keep it at the right level of formality and then make it a little bit more formal and put a little bit more money into it as it looks more and more encouraging. What's also interesting is, right, you talk about the corporate culture and this whole idea, I feel like it's almost, if you have like a startup idea, you mm-hmm. can go before a review board, right. right, and they'll, if they like it, they commit more money to right. the project. Right, right, right. So they have this thing, they, they basically borrowed from a kind of VC model, but it's internal. And so you have a bunch of projects start at this early stage and as they get sort of more and more promising, they, they, you know, they, they, they dedicate more money to it. And if they're not promising, they, they, they're pretty ruthless about axing it. So this cornea implant, where's it going? Or how's it's it going? going into, it's going very well. It's in rabbits right now. Okay. Uh, the rabbits have done very well with it. Uh, it's kind of how you start your story, right? right? Right. Yeah. With it going into a little rabbit. Um, Animal testing. But we right. think 2020 potentially yeah. in humans yeah, yeah, and yeah, then broader market by 2026. 2026. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's still a long road, but I think it's done much, much better than anything that's available right now.
And that's Drake Bennett. And, you know, everybody knows about Gore-Tex, right? We all have some outside gear that we're wearing that has that material. But it was a fascinating look at the company's culture. I told Drake Bennett, and I think you agreed, that this is a story they're going to be reading in business school because it just takes you inside and helps you connect the dots between how a company acts on the inside and what comes out from its products. So some say it's the biggest thing to affect the animal protein market this year, and Jason will probably have a lasting effect for a number of years. We're talking about the African swine fever in China. Well, and this has implications for the global food chain. Mm -hmm. That's what I really learned from this story. Christina Lindblad is here. She edits the economics section. Take us into the world of pigs. It's the year of the pig in China, but it has not been a very good year for pigs. So China recorded in August its first reported case of swine flu, and authorities said that it was quickly brought under control. It was in a small pig farm in a sort of somewhat isolated area, and they culled the herd. But... um, Already, it had beginning. It was had began spreading. This is kind of the equivalent of, of pig Ebola. It's a very contagious disease. There are no vaccines. There are no treatments for it. Every pig that gets it pretty much dies. And let's <clears throat> remind people, or maybe tell them for the first time, because I, I didn't know any of this. Mm-hmm. Half the world's pigs are, are in China. That's right. That's incredible. And what we're talking about in terms of the number of pigs that may be affected, it's the equivalent of all of the pigs in the United States. That's the magnitude of this issue, right? Right. So the USDA, uh, which you know does reports for a whole bunch of countries, um, is anticipating that as many as 134 million pigs may have to be culled from China's herd. Um, So, yeah, that's actually equivalent to the output of pigs in the U.S. because, Uh. you know, it only takes six months for a pig from birth to slaughter. So, you know, it's not just the herd right now. If you count the herd right now, it's about 74 um, million. Wow. Oh, so that's the annual output. So it's even more than it's actually in the country. Amazing. That's a good It's staggering. All right. So then what has this meant for, one, food consumption, specifically pork consumption or alternative, you know, food protein consumption in China? And then how does that impact the global food chain? Well, Meat processors in Australia and as far away as Brazil are reporting increased demand. Uh, In the U.S., of course, um, exports to China, pork exports to China uh, in particular, are tariffs right now because of the tariff war. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of anxiety among, like, farmers, you know, to see those tariffs gone because they know there's going to be a big demand pull. Um, And, you know, that could also be additional pressure on Xi, you know, to reach a... um, final deal with Trump, although that has become kind of fraught, as we saw this week. I think what's fascinating about this story, though, is when you start to put the numbers into perspective and how quickly this has spread, how something very quickly can impact our global food supplies. Yeah, you realize how interconnected everything is, including food, despite, Mm -hmm. like, you know, this push in Western countries, let's say, for locavore right. movements and on all that. I mean, but yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, like, you know, we looked around and we saw, like, in Spain, wholesale prices have gone up. In the U.S., they have gone up. In China, they're up about 20% pork prices. Mm-hmm. So much so that the central bank in China is, you know, looking at this Pork is the biggest single element of the consumer price basket in China. So this is going to have an effect on inflation. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that because there's a a micro and a macro economic impact for the country of China. And as you say, that goes well beyond the food supply. This could actually dovetail into what they do around monetary policy. That's right. So one analyst is forecasting that this could have add up more than five percentage points to in the overall inflation figure, which will constrain, could constrain rather, uh, the central bank's ability to pump more stimulus into the economy in order, you know, because we've seen now um, growth start to quicken, but that's been partly an action with credit. <clears throat> that number is staggering because you're talking about boosting inflation by more than 5%. And I think one of the estimates out there, maybe Citigroup or something like that, is forecasting inflation for 2.6%. So That's right. That's so only been around 2-something percent yeah. in recent years. So, yeah. So what does it kind of tell us that, I don't know, needs to be done? I mean, what is China doing? They're saying, wait, we've got this under control. Well, apparently they don't have it under control. They've, or do they? Mm, well, they say that the spread of the disease is slowing, but outside, you know, 
observers are not so sure. You know, we have had problems in the past with H1N1. I mean, one of the good things about this is that this virus so far has not been proven to be contagious to humans. Right. But we know in the past that they, they you know, it's, it's difficult to police, partly mm -hmm. because um, even though China's uh, pork industry is consolidating, there's still a lot of small farms, and they are the weak links in this whole issue. So, Well, what's the oversight in China of this, right? Well, I mean, there's been efforts over the years. Every time something like this happens, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, using technology to create, you know, kind of like a sort of a, a chain of accountability. So we know like where, you know, contaminated meat comes from. But, you know, you hear that and then like then you see horrible pictures in the news about right. Chinese rivers full of right. dead pigs that, you know, farmers have dumped because, you know, they're Ill, they're sick. That's Christina Lindblad, and I confess I wasn't quite sure what to expect from right. this story, but it really reminds us how interconnected the world is when it comes to food. So big business often makes for an easy target by politicians. In this week's remarks, a thoughtful essay on why we may not want to brush all businesses with the same stroke. Well, we are in that time, yes. that time of the cycle where politicians start to glom onto the messages that they think will resonate. Bernie Sanders uh, notably has been talking about this. Peter Coy's talking about this this week in the magazine, as you mentioned. So what's going on out there? We talk a lot about inequality among individuals. That's a, a big topic and for good reason. But what we don't talk about as much is inequality between companies. And the liberal uh, agenda is kind of just to tar big business with the brush of being sort of anti-consumer or whatever. And they're sort of treated like a monolith. In fact, businesses have just as much variety as individuals do. Some are extremely successful, and then there are others that really are costing money they, uh, to their shareholders and their bondholders. They, they may, on paper, some of them be making money as reported to the SEC, but if you look at it from an economic profit basis, that's where you take into account the cost of capital. They're actually they're not even earning their keep. They're losing money. Explain that concept. Dig into it a little bit deeper. Economic profit. All right. This is uh, based on a study by McKinsey Global Institute, which is the think tank arm of McKinsey & Company consulting firm. Um, and it's called economic profit. But it's not a McKinsey idea. It's, it's out there. Right. A lot of people use it. Um, another person who uh, uses a lot is Aswath Damodaran, who is a famous uh, accounting finance professor NYU Stern School but but it's it's not just that I mean, it's like it, it's taught in business school yeah and it's really important because uh, if you simply like have a company with uh, a lot of uh, resources mm -hmm. that it raised either from stockholders or bondholders and then it makes a pittance of a profit well that's not good enough the shareholders, the bondholders have a certain expectations. There's a threshold that the company needs to clear in order to be kind of a legit uh, business. The cost of that capital. Yeah, it's the cost of its capital. So, right. And that's, you know, anybody who's uh, watching this who went to business school, talk about WAC, weighted average cost of capital. Mm -hmm. You need to have a return on invested capital exceeding your WAC. And if you don't, then... No matter what you told the SEC or your shareholders, you're not a successful business. Is this something that investors take into account as they're, they're assessing companies, or is this more for economic analysis? No, I, it's both. Uh, you know, serious investors pay attention to the economic profit. So what McKinsey Global Institute found is that, that they took 5,750 companies worldwide that make over a billion dollars a year in revenue. And they found that um, the top decile, the top one-tenth of these companies, accounted for like 80% of all the profits earned by the entire group of them on economic profits. Meanwhile, the bottom tenth actually had negative economic profits, which were almost exactly the same in, in size. Mm -hmm. So it's like a barbell where... Uh, the losses exactly offsetting the gains. And then the companies in the middle are kind of like not earning. They're, they're, they're caught in the middle. And it's a big theme of the story is that you don't want to sort of be in the middle. Um, How come? Because you're, you're sort of squeezed on both ends. Mm. Um, you have trouble keeping up with the superstars because they're like racing ahead of you with new products, new services, 
taking the best people, uh, and and yet the people at the bottom are hurting you in a different way because they are uh, you may you know maybe trying to cut prices right. or take drastic actions to try to save themselves, and they can drag down the profitability of an entire industry. We used to say it was good enough to be number one, two, or three in an industry, yeah. right? That you were probably safe as a company, your outlook was good. And now it sounds like from reading your story and reading remarks this week, Peter, is that it's not. It's not good enough to even be second. Like, you want to be first in whatever industry you're talking about. Uh, so Robert Frank, the Cornell uh, economist, wrote a book like 1995 with a co-author from Duke called uh, Winner-Take-All Society, which is really prescient. I mean, the, that phenomenon was starting to develop then, but it's, it's much more obvious now. Yes, uh, the, what happens is it's a, it's a nonlinear kind of situation where if you're just a little bit better than number two, then people look at you and say, yeah, I'll pick number one. Why would I pick number two if yeah. I have a choice of number one? And right. so all people want to work for number one. Yeah. people want to buy from number right. one. And so uh, there's a it's kind of a tipping point. The number two has just as much cost as number one, or virtually the same, but it doesn't have the revenue. So it's you can you can tip quite quickly for being up at the top decile. And McKinsey found this, by the way. They found a lot of mobility from period to period. Some companies that were in the top suddenly found themselves in the bottom. Although you can also find examples in the other direction. Well, mm-hmm. I want to talk about that idea because yeah. you have some examples of this, of you know being at the top and then going to the bottom. I feel like that's been the story that we've seen, or a story that we've seen a lot over the last 10 to 20 years. Well, I was thinking of uh, back in the financial crisis, you had some banks that yeah. seemed to be rock solid uh, Lehman Brothers is a great example. Yeah. You know, was there any good money? And then, poof, right. disappeared. Uh, some uh, RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland, some others that required uh, bailouts. Massive bailouts. AIG. Uh, AIG, I mean, was, uh, I think, the world's biggest insurance company before it suddenly collapsed and required a required a, a rescue. On the flip side, though, you also remind us of Apple. And I think we all love to bring out that story where Apple was on top and it wasn't. Yeah. And now it's back on top. Yeah, Apple. Uh, you know, was, there were rumors of Apple might go be forced into bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Microsoft came in with 150 million dollars in, uh, which seems like such a tiny amount of <laughs> money now. Yeah. Kind of is. But that was <laughs> relatively speaking. But that was what it took. That was to, the lifeline. Yeah, put a yeah. floor under Apple. Uh, so thanks to Bill Gates, I guess, and the company. Don't need to tell you is a, you know, one, it's one of the world's most, most valuable companies at this yeah. point. So draw the line for us between this level of inequality that you described from a corporate perspective and the income inequality we see on an individual basis, right. which is driving a lot of the political conversation at this point. Well, it turns out you can actually draw a link because if you think about a company that's a superstar, it pays its people really well. Except it doesn't have a lot of people. One reason it's very productive is it doesn't need a lot of people. And meanwhile, it's driving some of the second-tier players out of business. They're laying off a lot of people. And those people who used to make good money uh, are, are now unemployed or working for uh, in, in lower-paid types of jobs. So the, the superstars actually contribute to um, – the rise of the share of total profit earned by companies versus the returns earned by labor. And David Autor at MIT, a well-known economist, um, and some co-authors wrote a whole paper about the impact of superstar companies on the share of uh, returns earned by labor versus capital. I was curious, what was the catalyst for doing this story? Was there a conversation in the newsroom? Did our editor, Joel Weber, did you come across something? It was McKinsey. Uh, yeah. They put out, they've, they've done a series of papers uh, based on their research. So I saw that, talked extensively to some of their people, and then broadened out the reporting right. by talking to people like the NYU guy and Robert Frank and so on. Can that research, can your reporting somehow make some conclusions about what we need to do to kind of reduce the gaps that we're seeing, whether it's in corporate America or really among individuals? You know, I th- there's one thing I'd like to uh, point I'd like to make. I don't know. Uh, 
the the company names we've been talking about here are do not appear anywhere in McKinsey. The, the company is very mm-hmm. careful yeah, yeah. about yeah. not uh, talking about companies. I got the names from my own research, and Bloomberg uh, has a function that allows you to look at companies ranked by their economic value added concept similar to economic profit. So I spent a lot of Shocking time Shocking there's a function for that. I spent a lot of time on the Bloomberg, yeah. you know, refining my criteria and rerunning and running the I, I do want to ask you though about Bernie Sanders. But Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, you know, throughout the whole cast of characters who are vying for the Democratic nomination. You think about what happened here in New York City uh, with AOC versus Amazon. I mean, these are these broad brush strokes that you talk about that politicians are painting business with are having a real effect on the political debate, it feels like, and the economics of cities and, and ultimately the economics of a lot of these companies. I went back and looked at what Bernie Sanders has said and a lot of the times he'll say these companies that are earning outrageous profits, which is his way of referring to that top tier, the superstars. But um, sometimes he'll speak more broadly about yeah. large multinationals. And so uh, my point is only uh, Sanders is not completely wrong, but it's important to distinguish who you're really talking about because it's, it's not a monolith. So that, of course, is our economics editor, Peter Coy, writing this week's remarks. And I think it's it's right on in terms of politicians right now as we gear up for the 2020 elections. They do find big business a target. And Peter reminds us you can't kind of group all big business together. So in a sign of what a force the social video app TikTok has become, Jason, this is our second story in the magazine on the company in less than a month. Right. Because it's ubiquitous. Yes. Everybody's doing it. But one of the big questions is, what's the effect it's actually having? on the music business. For that, we turn to Luca Shaw here with us in New York, your annual pilgrimage to uh, see everything that's going on back east. Uh, what's going on with TikTok? So TikTok, I mean, right now, the number one song in the United States is a song called Old Town Road, which is by an artist called Lil Nas X. It's this weird fusion of hip hop and country. And it got there because of TikTok. This song started to go viral there, and then it started to rise on the charts. And that's happening across the world, whether it's in Korea or China uh, or, or even some countries in Europe. A song that starts as a kind of viral video phenomenon becomes the most streamed song in the world. And that's really what TikTok is, right? You make these videos, right? And you use music to make them. Yeah, they're 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, and you sit and you do a dance with your girlfriend, or you like do a really sped up makeup tutorial. Did that tutorial. last night. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it is not a full length music video like on YouTube. It's these really little snippets, which is part of what makes it hard for a musician because the fans who have listened to this, you know, don't know who you are. Mm. Right, and there's no real sort of monetary, direct monetary uh, link from that to the artist, right? Right. The record labels made deals with TikTok and the the Chinese equivalent Douyin a long time ago that were for tens of millions of dollars. For several months now, they've been trying to get paid more. And it still is pretty small. An artist is not going to get rich off of TikTok. The hope is that the burst of fame that you get from the app will then lead to streams or people purchasing or people going to see you and you can monetize that fame in another way. Right. How do artists feel about it? Right. Because I think that's what it is. It's really advertising for the artist. I think most artists are more comfortable with it than record labels and rights Mm. holders. Like rights rights holders are used to wanting to squeeze every last dollar out of anybody who has that cop is using that copyright of theirs. The artists figure it's a good way Way to promote themselves and get recognized, mm-hmm. and then it's on them really to figure out what to do with it. Well, because you mentioned in your story, fits in the tantrums. Everybody knows that band mainly because of the song "Hand, hand clap. clap." This is I can make your hands clap. Yeah, right? all right. Uh, so <laughs> nice they, job. thank you. Um, so in the zeitgeist, but what uh, what happened with them? Because they didn't even get to Asia. They actually. Yeah. Yeah, we're that, unaware of what was going on. That song was their first song to go double platinum in the U.S., which means and the equivalent of two million people or copies were purchased. But that happened in 2016, 2017. Then in 2018, when they're at the end of their album cycle, they're finishing their tour, nobody's listening to it that much. All of a sudden, this song starts to take off in Korea. It had gathered steam on some social video apps, including TikTok. Right. And then their record label in 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 Asia kind of 
paid this dance studio to make a video t- to the song where they can do some big choreography, and that goes crazy. It generates millions of streams in Korea. All of a sudden, Hand Clap becomes the number one song in the international charts in Korea, bigger than you know Camila Cabello's Havana, which was the biggest song of last year. But you look at the rest of the top ten, and it's the biggest songs in the world, and Hand Clap is sitting there at number one. I feel like this story has so many different angles, but take us back to TikTok, because as I said, we just covered a story in the magazine, I think a few weeks ago. Um, About ByteDance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell us, remind us who these folks are. So it started in a weird way. If you remember, there was an app called Musical.ly that was mm-hmm. also a short-form video, fun app, kind of like Vine, uh, which was the site that, or the, the app that Twitter had. And that built a pretty big following in the U.S. 2014, 2015, 2016. Musical.ly did. Right. Yeah. Then ByteDance, which is this Chinese company that, again, we had in the magazine a little while ago, they have a, a news app called Totiao, and they look at TikTok and they say, hey, this is a good business for us. They build kind of their own version of it called Douyin in China. And it takes off, gets 100 million users like that. Um, Then they build an international version called TikTok. Now, Musical.ly was kind of this nice, fun, viral phenomenon, but it wasn't building into this huge business. But ByteDance, which was suddenly invested in this, decides, you know, we're going to go and buy Musical.ly. They do that and fold it into TikTok. And so now kind of they are the company behind short-form social video. And if you look in China, one of the most interesting things is kind of Douyin and TikTok have scared Tencent, which is kind of the the messaging and, and tech giant in China, which owns WeChat, right. to try to copy some of what Douyin and TikTok do on its app. And we should point out that TikTok is T-I-K-T-O-K, no relation to, to TikTok. Bloomberg's TikTok. <laughs> Bloomberg's TikTok, which is a news service that we have. Well, it's just kind of, TikTok has downloaded more than a billion times, or has been downloaded more than a billion times worldwide, available in more than 150 countries, the most downloaded free app in the world for a time last year. I mean, this is unbelievable in terms of how significant the impact that they are having. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a legitimate question as to how long it will last, how big it's going to get, how do you monetize, how do you sell ads against something that are all these short little videos? Do they sell ads against it? There's not a lot. There's not much advertising now. You have to imagine that kind of that's the long term plan, right? Yeah. That they either by having ads in between short videos, kind of like Snap does, yeah. or maybe you get companies to make their own viral videos and try to to build there, kind of like YouTube does. And that's Lucas Shaw. It was a treat to have him here in New York. He's been all over the world, it feels like, recently, this time bringing us the story of TikTok. It's based over in Asia, but it's making a huge impact, clearly, in the United States. This is a company that's shaking up social media and so much more. So, Barilla, you probably know their pasta and sauces. It is the world's largest pasta empire based in Italy. The company went through a crisis and perhaps you might say an awakening back in 2013 following comments by the company's chairman. It's a story that involves the culture. Mm-hmm. Modernity, social media, <laughs> a, lot. a family-owned business, and so much more. Thomas Buckley joins us from London. He wrote the story. So take us inside this empire, Thomas. Right. So Barilla is an absolutely fascinating empire. I mean, they've been in business for about uh, 200 years, um, slightly less, really, about 150 around there. And um, it's really interesting. I mean, they've been under family ownership, really, for most of that time. Um, there's only about a decade in the 70s when it fell out of family ownership. So controlled by the Barilla family at the moment, that's four siblings, one of whom, Guido, is the chairman of the company and was the chairman back in 2013 also when he made those comments um, on Italy's best-known radio show uh, that were condemned widely as homophobic. All right, so let's get into that because, as you say, I mean, this is a company very well known in the Italian corporate culture, really known in the global pasta you know, industry. But take us back to 2013 and what happened with Chairman. That's right. So he was giving a um, live radio interview on really Italy's best known radio show. And in that segment, he said that he would never do a, um, a commercial with a gay family, uh, not because he disagreed with the lifestyle, but just because it's not the lifestyle that Barilla wanted to align itself with or represent. I mean, you have to remember that uh, Italy is a phenomenally traditional country in this respect. Um, I think a lot of that can be attributed to the impact of uh, religion on moral philosophy in the country. And so at the time, I mean, his comments for the nation might not have even seemed really that off 
color. I mean, several comments have been made since then by some of um, the country's most powerful businessmen. But given that so much of um, Barilla's revenue is now coming from international channels, the brand is very well known abroad, and a lot of customers in countries such as the US or other countries in Europe uh, really mounted a global boycott, um, or at least threatened a global boycott, um, very shortly after those comments were made. And it's an amazing saga that unfolds from there, in part just staying in that moment. You had no less than Chrissy mm-hmm. Teigen mm-hmm. coming out to her massive sh- social media following and really decrying these comments. And as you say, in such sharp contrast to maybe a lot of shrugged shoulders there among the corporate elite in Italy. So what's the corporate internal response because the story opens with the CEO essentially driving to (laughs) to meet the chairman and hearing this interview and being shocked, just being absolutely shocked, but then having to deal with the aftermath. So what did he do? That's right. So um, I had a great opportunity to interview the CEO of the company, um, Claudio Colzani, and he joined um, less than a year before the the interview was broadcast uh, from Unilever, which um, I think really prides itself on a number of diversity measures, uh, has done for a long time. He sat on the diversity board of uh, Unilever in his role as chief customer officer in New Jersey. And coming back to Italy, I think he was um, maybe slightly taken aback that those comments were made and um, really the fact that, as he put it to me back in our interview in February, that the debate on LGBT issues um, came quite a bit later than in other European countries. So he really took everything that he'd learned in a 25-year career at Unilever celebrating diversity and tried to apply it um, to to Barilla in um, as short a time frame as possible, really, because the U-turn that was needed, I think, was quite drastic to get the company um, back on track with a lot more of its uh, progress of customers. So he hired in consultants from Corn Ferry, Oxford Group, um, PDT Global, and uh, has gone through some sweeping changes that have seen uh, the number of managers participating in diversity issues at Barilla um, leap from 2013 to the present day. You distill it down really well at one point in your story. I just want to read this. You say he plotted three chapters, apology, investigation, and promotion. And then there's a great quote where he says, we were simply trying to be a good citizen. Now we're trying to be a role model. That's a real shift in terms of what it requires, not just of him as a leader, but of the entire team and and really the culture of the company, right? I totally agree. I I think it is an important shift. I mean, especially when it comes at a time, um, circumstantially, when a a lot of Italy's politics may be um, edging very much right of center. So it's up to corporations, I think, to promote uh, perhaps a slightly more diverse ideal. I mean, the rhetoric at the moment politically is that um, the the idea of a traditional nuclear Italian family, uh, which, you know, is a concept that I think a lot of um, Italians take a lot of pride in, is being besieged by um, either a, a rise in um, homosexuality or um, a, a rise in immigration. And I think that he's now trying to set an example that's uh, maybe speaking to a slightly brighter future for Italy, wherein the country does become slightly more diverse, slightly more open to the world, but not in the way that uh, the national identity is at all under threat. Right. You do point out other you know, corporate, or, or cor- corporate executives and other corporations in Italy. You talk about Dolce and Gabbana, right? I mean, here was two individuals who were a couple, guys who were a couple, uh, a gay couple for many years, but they too were critical of the culture. That's right. I, I think it, um, it, it goes to maybe speak to how entrenched this, um, this, this conceit is really yeah. in, in Italian culture. I mean, again, coming back to an earlier point um, in this conversation about the impact of moral philosophy, sorry, of religion on moral philosophy in the country, I mean, it, it tends to be that um, anything that you know, approaches homosexuality is widely condemned as an affront on, um, on Italian uh, culture in some respects, or at least the importance of the nuclear heterosexual family that Italy perceives. What about the inside of the company? I'm curious of Barilla, right? Because executives were also not just executives, but employees of the company. After those comments by the chairman back in 2013, they were pretty upset. That's absolutely right. I think uh, that the international management team at Barilla is um, incredibly diverse to begin with. So I think that for them, it was really almost taking a step back in time when they heard these comments coming from the very top. And um, for a number of Italians, too, who know Guido Barilla very well, I mean, the man is very much involved in the business, often 
tours the plant on a weekly basis and so on and so forth. And so the head of the plant, whom I had uh, the luck to speak to, he, he said he was really quite taken aback. They didn't really recognize himself or the company in the chairman's comments. And I think very quickly, if enough people voiced that sort of surprise and um, angst at the comments that were made, I, I think that eventually you're going to find the sort of U-turn that we saw coming from the company because it's simply unacceptable mm -hmm. in this day and age to be making these sorts of comments. That's Thomas Buckley. We talked with him from London. And Barilla, I think most people know it's pasta and it's sauces, but maybe they didn't know a lot about the company culture. And that's exactly what Thomas got into. And it's a culture that's had to be radically reinvented, essentially taking it out of Italy in a lot of ways, breaking uh, some old cultural habits there to keep it relevant in the modern business landscape. So Carol, we talk so much about money and sports. We talk about rich guys buying teams, their companies getting into this business. There's media, there's players. In this case, there's cars. It's much more complicated. Right. We're talking about Mr. Malone getting into, so well known, right, to the cable industry. And he's done really well. This time, getting into sports hasn't gone so well. Editor of the business section, Jim Ellis, is here to tell us what's going on. So what happened? Well, I mean, it seems like it should have been an easy fix. I mean, John Malone, who uh, runs Liberty Media. And you know, has done really well. And has done really well in the cable industry, industry, right? industry and, you know, is around the world, not just in the U.S., but right. around the world. What he's decided was that I can go and grab this great sports franchise. It's the biggest franchise in racing. It's Formula One. And so you think of, you know, riding through the streets of Monaco and great cars with, you know, sort of international, you know, sort of, you know, hobnobbing. And it's a great thing. But what he didn't count on was that when you there are a lot more um, players in these in, in this particular sport that have a lot of power that keep you from making changes. He came in and he said one of the big problems here is predictability. One of the things people go to sports for is to see who's going to win and it's, there's this excitement and whatever. That isn't the case in uh, Formula One racing. Only two teams have uh, won the championship in the last nine years. Makes well, it boring, I think, for you know, yeah. somebody who's watching a little bit, right? And in, in the sports world, as we all know, you know, people like a dynasty every now and then. Yeah. But yeah. this is a totally different element here because you've got Ferrari and Red Bull. Red I mean, Bull so just you winning got, and winning. You've got three things. I mean, so basically the, what happens is Mercedes seems to always win. And then you sort of guess, well, who'll be second and who'll be third? Will it be Red Bull? Will it be Ferrari? And they just swap. And um, that's a really big problem for the sport. What it does is it sort of lowers the sort of the uh, excitement that you know viewers have. So what Malone wants to do is to figure out ways to change that uh, that predictability. One big way, he says, is to put a cap on how much teams can spend. Because mm. it's turned out that in this type of racing, the more you spend, the more likely you are to win, simply because you have more money to throw behind engineering versus the actual you know, talent of driving the car. So he says, okay, we're going to put a cap on that, and it's going to mean that the driver matters more and makes it sort of unpredictable. We're also going to change the revenue sharing, because the revenue sharing now is set up in a way that a lot of younger teams, a lot of smaller teams, don't get a lot of money. And so they tend to get out of the sport or they go bankrupt. So he wants to go for a better revenue split, you know, more of a U.S. model where both, you know, successful teams and unsuccessful teams get a piece of the action. And then the last thing he wants to do is look for ways to make sure that, um, uh, that, that people who have been in the sport for a long time, what they call longevity payments, don't really skew things. Right now, if you've been in there a long time, you just get money thrown at you just because of seniority. Yeah, I've been doing this a long time. I've been doing my a job on it. I want a longevity <laughs> payment. But what they're doing now is they're paying a longevity payment to Ferrari of about $100 million a year. Oh, my God. They're huge payments yeah. and because they've been in the sport continuously right. since 1950. But what happens is that the economics of the sport really go crazy because they're unlike anything else that anybody's been used to. Well, that's a good point because like, you have to look at both sides of this. Right. If you're a team involved in this sport in Formula One, it's not inexpensive to build out that team. Right. right. And there's not a ton of ways to kind of make that money back. Well, that's one of the issues here. It's like, you know, for some 
manufacturers of cars, you know, like a Mercedes or a Ferrari, you know, you sort of view that as connected to your business. For other people, it's a branding exercise, right. like Virgin. Um, for some people, or Red Bull, a, or, a Red Bull. Yeah, That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. And so what happens then is that you have to figure out what's the reason that a person wants to be in here. But also, no matter what, even if you say it's just a branding exercise, you don't want to lose all the time. And you don't want to continually see money funnel to people who you don't think deserve it. At the same time, you know, John, John Malone is facing a sport that's losing its audience, right. right? Not making as much money as it used to. So if it continues on that path, there ain't going to be no formula right. one that's for like, anybody. That, that's not a good thing. <laughs> so what he says is, okay, let's get, you know, you'll get the audience back if you, you know, raise the idea of it's unpredictable. We can watch that. Yeah. He also has tried to, you know, shift over from uh, regular television where right. the audience has gone down and therefore the, what you can sell for ads has gone down. So he switched over to pay TV. That's made up some of the loss, but it also means that you get a lot fewer eyeballs. Right. In the racing business, you, you lose about 40% of your audience when you go to, uh, you know, behind a paywall, when you go to pay TV. Yeah. And so he's got to figure out some way just to make this a more exciting sport. And that's Jim Ellis taking us deep into the world of Formula One. And as he admitted to us, he didn't know that much about it before he edited this story. I certainly didn't either. It is a complicated business, much more complicated than a lot of the sports ownership stories we see here stateside. And if anybody understands complicated, it's John Malone. He's certainly has shown that in the cable industry. We'll see if he can do it with Formula One. So now to Pursuits. Chris Rouser is the editor of Pursuits. And this week, it's all about summer at the shore. And we have your private beach getaway to private islands, to what to read on the beach, to what mm-hmm. to wear on the beach, and to keep in drinks really cool on the beach. And we're going to get to what to wear. That's my favorite part of all of this. That's my favorite. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, see, I thought your favorite part would be the private island. I well, think you're just going to sail your you. boat uh, to whatever island you there decide to buy. Island. So this is quite a survey, Chris. It's very high-low islands. when it comes to price points. Yeah. So talk to us about these private islands because some of them are, in the grand scheme of things, like affordable yeah well yeah so we're doing we wanted to do a whole section on like being at the shore um over the summer and we started out with this package on private islands that are um set up for the long haul so you know we've got solar panels got cisterns you know because sort of having a sustainable place is kind of important when you're so far away from right land um and so we have places from canada to belize to connecticut um and all of which you know range from like four million to 20 million or more. I've passed this potato island. It's part of the um, Thimble Islands I'm off the Connecticut coast. They're, ado- island, they're yeah. adorable. So it's the cluster of islands. Yeah, and- if you ever take the train from New York to Boston, yeah. the, the Amtrak, which has like the best real estate in all of New England, <laughs> goes I totally right agree. along the water. And you can see all these little islands with houses on them. And one of them is for sale. And it's under $5 million. And the house is this old shingle style house. It's perched on the edge. It's like goes over the water, basically. Yeah. It has a jacuzzi out on the rock yeah. cliffs. Climate change makes me a little nervous about this island. Yeah. So, well, <laughs> about all of them. Climate change is an issue for all of them yeah. and, and part of the story is about how they're prepared for um, you know tides and um, being disconnected from the mainland but this is in Long Island Sound so it doesn't get that choppy unless there's a big storm good point I mean one of the things that I found so fascinating about this part of the package was each of these homes has a story you know uh-huh. whether it was passed mm-hmm. down through generations yeah. whether you know there's a legacy going back to Napoleon I believe yeah. uh, in, in one case I mean it's kind of remarkable how each of them you know has this tale that you sort of get with purchase yeah well I mean to buy, to build a place on an island that's so disconnected you really have to make a strong choice right you have to be like I want this for a reason and the, the Venice one is amazing it's one of the it's a fort that Napoleon built um, and it's still some of the structures are still there uh, and it's you know it's a 20 minute boat ride from you know um, San Marco in it used Venice. to be a fort right? It used to be a fort yeah exactly and uh, you know it could be yours if you want it this yeah. piece of history twice upon request yeah <laughs> this yeah. was the low high end yeah. <laughs> yeah. that yeah, we're exactly. talking about was it hard to find I, I mean I feel like there's lots of islands around the world but was there a ton of them to kind of there look are up? a lot yeah. in fact there are a lot of websites devoted to just sales of private islands um, and there's a lot on the market it's not like these things are getting snapped up they sit on the market for a while some of them have underwater electrical lines mm-hmm. a lot of solar panels right right exactly yeah well and it also is a bit of a throwback too in the sense that at least for a couple of them you know there's the main house and then there's a bit of a compound and so there's housing for staff you know there's yeah. like yeah. accommodations for eight and yeah. for everyone for, you know 12 staff we sort of list what you know what can what staff can be supported there because again it's, it's tough to be sort of so isolated this is not you know 
This is not for a regular vacation. This is for very fancy people. <laughs> okay, deal. Uh, for very fancy people who <laughs> might want to actually wear um, jewelry inspired by the beach while they're on their private island, correct? Yeah. See, I feel like sometimes I come to you guys with good news that you're excited <laughs> about, and sometimes I come to you with bad news. I don't know how you feel about this, but puka shell necklaces Aww. from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, they're coming back. <laughs> I love the idea that this story starts with a callback <laughs> to the Partridge family. Like, you had me right there. I know, yeah. I David know. I had Cassidy. Carol. I know, totally. <laughs> um, so Irene Newworth, um, you know, sort of grew up with, you know, loving, she's a great jewelry designer. She grew up loving that sort of beachy vibe. And so she makes actually a puka shell style necklace, which is made out of opals uh, secretly. So you don't even really know that's what it is. Um, but every, That's $9,000. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. A $9,000 puka shell necklace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think and, I had one that was under $10. <laughs> yeah. And so, but it's actually a real trend that was on the runways. It's Pretty. basically seashells. Uh, in lots of different forms, uh, in earrings, in bracelets, in necklaces, uh, Alexander McQueen, people like that all doing it. And um, it's it's kind of campy. It's a little bit costumey, but it's also very relaxed. Like you can wear kind of diamonds on a seashell and it right. doesn't look like you're, you know, dressed to the nines. Well, and there's also the gold clamshell <coughs> brooch by Oscar de la Renta, and that's $190. So right. something See? something for almost everyone. $190? You find a shell at the $190? This can be yours. I, I'm imagining you on your sailboat wearing some measure of this jewelry. That's all I do. But There's maybe nothing. like a little brooch as you jet out to your private island. As you said, That's high low, right? Right, exactly. At the end of the day, it's just a seashell. All right. The next item, also something to wear, and this is more up Jason's alley. Although oh, I got to say, I think I, I think want one too. Yeah. Talk about this beach blazer. So I started hearing rumbles about this kind of last summer. And then over the winter, I started getting pitched about this garment called a beach blazer or a toweling blazer, tuxedo, uh, which is basically a, a blazer, like right. a jacket top. And it's terry, right? It's terry cloth. So it's made of towel material, but it's structured and tailored like a blazer. And so you so you can go, basically, like if you're at a summer wedding, you could just wear it and you're like kind of ready to go to You're dinner. ready for cocktail hour. Yeah, I, mean, I could wear this is, to work. It is amazing. And yeah. what I found so fascinating about this story is you interviewed some guys who came up with this, but meanwhile, there were several people around yes. the world who were essentially coming into this idea at the same How time. How does that happen? And people came to it from, um, you know, all sorts of different ways. So, yeah. like, this one guy, um, Marco Andrus, who did Basque Poolside Company, which is the main company that we write about, was just sort of sitting and thinking, like, what can I wear that's, like, cool and kind of formal but also kind of relaxed? Um, and so, you know, he he made one for himself and wore it around Nantucket one summer, and people were like, what is that? Where is that? Can I get it? And that's why he started the company. It's gorgeous. What does it go for? How much does it cost? They, um, they, they start at three twenty five, dollars um, and then there's a European brand called 209 Mare, which makes them for €345. Euro. Get ready for so it. So men and women can wear it? Yep, they're for men and women. You're buying wow. one, right? I'm, I am buying one, He's and like, I already know that my 16-year-old, I'll buy it, and then he will take it, and he'll be wearing it all summer at the beach and down by the Hudson. It's guaranteed. All right, so we've got our private island. We've got our jewelry to wear. You've got your beach jacket. Chris has got his beach jacket to wear, and now we've got We need books to read. Yeah, so... So a big theme about books this summer is escapes and getaways. And, you know, I actually talked to someone in publishing who said, you know, people don't people don't want to read satire. They don't want to read dark humor. They want to read, like, get me out of here uh, this year. And so um, so we round up some of our favorite ones. It's sort of uh, favorite books that sort of let you take yourself out of your own shoes. Um, so, you know, one of my favorites is this book, Honestly, We Meant Well. Uh, it's by the author Grant Ginder. He wrote the book, um, The People We Hate at the Wedding. Yes. He's, a, oh, he's yeah. a funny writer. And um, the book is just just kind of about a family that takes a family trip that's supposed to be a getaway, but it ends up like unearthing all these family secrets. It's really hilarious. Uh, and I read this other one called The Golden Hour by Beatrice Williams, and that's about um, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor in the 1940s living in the Bahamas. Uh, it, it, there's a murder, uh, which is very fun and escapist. Fiction. Th- that's fiction. Those are both fiction. And then we actually included Robert Caro's book, mm-hmm. yeah. Caro's book um, about just like, what's it like to be him and how he does his job and how his wife does a lot of his job. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I've heard a couple interviews with him recently. There's a phenomenal interview that he did actually with Conan O'Brien for mm-hmm. Conan O'Brien's podcast. Because Conan O'Brien, as you may or may not know, Robert Caro has been his white whale. Like, he's been trying to get this interview yes, no, I didn't. Um, for years and years and years. And he finally got it. And they spend a lot of time talking about this book, but also, you know, his work around Robert Moses and Lyndon Johnson. Mm-hmm. He's a fascinating character, Robert mm-hmm. Caro is, in his own right. And as you said, like... 
his devotion to his work. His wife apparently is incredible mm-hmm. and a real a uh, partner, and you know went along with him as he decides to move um, to the you know <laughs> to Texas, like way out into Texas from Austin, all the way into the hill country where li- where LBJ grew up. I mean, a well, fascinating it says character. how he manages it all, right? It says um, hard work and a brilliant wife. Yeah, brilliant so he really wife. does credit her. All right, so we got our books, we got gear to wear, we've got a place to go. Now we need a place to keep uh, all our beverages chilling. Chilling, chilling. Yeah, Yeah, so we we tested out a bunch of coolers and um, our favorite one was the Orca cooler. So that's our the one for the week. And a lot of people know this brand. Um, This and it and Yeti are kind of like the Yeti Yeah, I was fascinated by the fact that you picked this over the Yeti. Tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, um, both of them are actually uh, made by a, a technique called roto molding which is basically a way to uh, mold the plastic without seams which is something i didn't know about I love when chris talks manufacturing <laughs> before <laughs> if we did research for this story um and you know we just the seal on the orca is really great it looks great the handle is great for carrying it around there's actually led lighting in some of the more uh, expensive so it's models. like a fridge when yeah, you, you open like open it, it oh, up nuts. and it's, it lights up yeah so i love um, the hinges that actually look like whale right it's cute tails. it's a cute it's a cute cooler. and it keeps stuff cold for a long time yeah it can keep food days. fresh for 10 days if you you keep it pretty much closed. Deserted island. Yeah. You got your beverages. Yeah. But there are other options. The Yeti, as you say, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a, There are several other ones. Other and um, the Rover Roller 45 we like too. Um, but yeah, Yeti and Orca. So that's the editor of Pursuits, Chris Rouser. We had so much fun with him. The whole focus is, you know, summer at the shore. So we had private islands, we had jewelry, and of course we had a coat made just for you, Jason Kelly. I cannot get enough <laughs> of that beach blazer. I think I may need a closet of them. Check out Carol's Twitter feed for some really good pictures of that blazer. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast. Download, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine. It is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg.